love, if you would draw a picture for me this morning and give it to me after church, I will decorate the door of my office with your beautiful artwork. That would be fantastic. Draw me a picture. Make sure you sign your name on it so I know who the artwork's from. And uh, I would love to hang it in the Busby Gallery of Fine Art. So thanks so much for that. Um, if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 10? One more word to parents with kiddos in here this morning. Let me tell you a way to think about the noise your kids might make in the service this morning. It is a reminder that God keeps his promises, that the church is moving forward, that we're putting the gospel in the hearts of our most precious assets. So don't you feel bad one bit if your kiddo makes noise? Don't feel bad uh, about any of it. This is God's gift to us, his promises fulfilled. I'm grateful that you're here this morning with your family. Uh, Genesis chapter 10. Where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, several years ago, uh, we were in Uganda and we were visiting with some dear friends on this one particular night. And I asked for some advice from our Ugandan friend Wilbur. I, I explained that the next day we were going to be visiting this one particular family who lived in a very rural setting. And I asked if he knew of any unique customs that we might need to be aware of so as not to offend. We're not unfamiliar with Ugandan culture at the time, but I'm just thinking that way out in the village there might be some things that we need to be aware of. And so Wilbur said, yeah, I'm glad you asked. In fact, there is a custom that you may not know about, and it's, it's this, when visitors enter the home of a person way out in the village, uh, they do so walking backwards and bowing like this. And I thought, man, yeah, I've not, I've not heard of that one before. I'm really glad I asked. And then Wilbur just started to laugh really hard. And I realized he was just making stuff up. And he said, no, there's nothing special you need to know. They're people just like you. And I think that line, people just like you, would be a great heading for Genesis chapter 10. I think also this line should be used by followers of Jesus to describe how we view the global population. People from different countries, different languages, different cultures are ultimately people just like us. We are all people made in the image of God, people known by God, people who need the gospel. And it's easy to forget what we have in common with all humanity. And it's easy to entrench ourselves in divisions based on what's different among us. We are fully capable of, of dividing ourselves from people who are from countries uh, that we've never met or cultures that we don't understand or even neighbors who just merely have opinions with whom we disagree. Case in point, I give you the ubiquitous political yard sign and cause-related flag. These are not calls for unity. They are entrenchments in division. This is my side. You're on your side. Where's the yard sign that says, love your neighbor as yourself? Or, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or, for God so loved the world. Well, no one's buying those. Because our culture doesn't value 
a Christ-resembling unity and love. Division is what's prized. I'm in and you're out. That's the value of our culture. And that's why we have Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 teaches us how to view people. It's a genealogy. It's the longest one yet in our study of the book of Genesis. But this genealogy is not mere filler as if Moses had a word count that he had to hit before he submitted this to his publisher. This genealogy is a lesson in how to view humanity. Genesis chapter 10 gives us the genealogies of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you were with us last week, you remember at the end of chapter 9, we hear Noah speak blessings on Shem as well as on Japheth, but a curse on Ham. And you'll remember that these blessings and curse are not just on the boys as individuals, it is on their descendants. And at the end of chapter 9, we're left wondering, well, what happens with these blessings and this curse? And chapter 10 helps answer that for us. It shows us what becomes of these boys and their descendants. And so, uh, my purpose today is to help you understand the basics of a biblical worldview of humanity. Just basics. This is Christianity 101. How do we think about humans outside of ourselves? And Genesis chapter 10 lays out three fundamental ways of viewing humanity. So we're going to read Genesis 10 all the way through. It should take us about three minutes. I don't know how to pronounce every name in this list. I'm just going to send it, and you're going to cheer me on as we do. So follow along best as you can. Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 1. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. Japheth's sons, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Gomer's sons, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. And Javan's sons, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these descendants, the peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans and their nations, each with its own language. Ham's sons, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Cush's sons, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca, and Rama's sons, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That's why it said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city Kala. Mizraim fathered the people of Lud, Anam, Lehab, Napta, Pathras, Kazla, the Philistines came from them, and Kaphtor. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, as well as the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the Canaanite clans scattered. The Canaanite border went from Sidon going toward Gerar as far as Gaza and going toward Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are Ham's sons by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations. And Shem, 
Japheth's older brother, also had sons. Shem was the father of all the sons of Eber. Shem's sons were Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. Aram's sons, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. And Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleph, Hazar Mavith, Jera, uh, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were Joktan's sons. Their settlements extended from Mesha to Sephar, the eastern hill country. These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages and their lands and their nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records in their nations. The nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you very much. I am barely literate. All right. So Genesis 10. Here we have these three genealogies, name after name after name. And what it's teaching us is how God's people view humanity. What does it mean to have the eyes of the Lord for his people, for his creation? Let's take a moment and just walk through, process what we've just read. There are three genealogies in here. It's the line of Japheth and then Ham and then Shem. And what's listed among these names are a combination of individual names, family names, cities, people groups, and nations. When you and I think of genealogies, we just think in terms of names. This is my dad and my grandpa and my great-grandpa and my great-grandma and da, 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 and we just go through a list of names. This is not that kind of genealogy. It's more like a map than it is a family tree. And so, let me show you a map of these genealogies. Uh, on this map, you will see where the line of Japheth settled. Do, is my PowerPoint working this morning, Josh? Perfect. All right. Uh, so, on this map, first of all, can I get a woohoo for the map? Man, you're fired up today. Good job. So, on the map, uh, the top red portion is where the line of Japheth settled. The center yellow portion is where the descendants of Shem settled. And then this southern green portion, northeast Africa, is where the descendants of Ham settled. Uh, on this map are plotted roughly all the names that are mentioned in this genealogy. Uh, now, I want us to take a moment and just walk through each of the lists of names so that maybe it gives you a better verbal, or excuse me, a, a, a visual map of what we've read and where we've been. So first off is the line of Japheth, and I'm not going to go through all of these, but you can see this is Japheth's line. We're given his seven sons, and then uh, from those seven sons, just two expansions of the list from the names of Gomer and Javan. What we have here, uh, and is exemplified in the other list, is a combination of names and places. So Gomer is both a name and a place. That's a person and a place. Uh, Magog, that's a place. Tarshish, right in the middle, that's a place. And do you know where Tarshish, that's hard to say, Tarshish shows up later on in the Bible? It's in the book of Jonah. It's where Jonah tries to go to flee from the Lord's call on his life to go to Nineveh. 
Japheth just kind of gets this cursory glance in chapter 10. After Japheth is the line of Ham. And you will remember that Ham's descendants are those that are cursed by Noah at the end of chapter 9. Ham has these four sons. It's important to recognize that these may be names of sons, but they are certainly places. So Cush is first and foremost a place. That would be modern-day Ethiopia. It's Africa, south of Egypt, and east. Uh, Misraim is not a person. That's a place. That's Egypt. We don't hear a lot about Put, but then Canaan, who's named by Noah at the end of Genesis 9. Here's all the people groups in the land of Canaan. You'll remember Canaan is the promised land. That's where God's people are on their way to. And all of these groups are there, and they will not give up their real estate willingly. After the line of Ham is the line of Shem. You'll remember that Shem is the, the line of blessing from the Lord. Uh, and most notable in the line of Shem is his son Arpachshad. And through Arpachshad, we eventually get to Peleg. And in two Sundays, we'll hear Peleg's name again because it's through him that we come to a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. And God's blessing goes through Peleg's line to Abram to all of us. Okay? If you were to add up all the names in chapter 10, you would arrive at 70 names. I don't think that's accidental. I think that's intentional on Moses, the writer's part, to articulate to us that God is accomplishing his perfect work of filling the earth and putting people in the places where he desires. God is in control of all of this. This is not just haphazard population filling the lands. This is God putting people where he has ordained them to be. And from all of this, all of these names, all of God's sovereign work here in chapter 10, we learned three fundamental ways of viewing humanity. Let me tell you what those are. The first one is this. All people are connected. When we look at this list of names, the first thing we learn is that all people are connected. That's the first thing that ought to jump out at us as we read these genealogies. There is an interconnectedness between all these various peoples and groups. How are they interconnected? Well, first of all, they are in interconnected by ancestry. No matter the number of generations or the number of sons who have sons or groups of people and places, they all start at the same place. They all start at Noah and Mrs. Noah. And before that, Adam and Eve. They all have the same starting point, the same ancestry, the same DNA, a common heritage. Even though you may be from the line of Japheth or the line of Ham or the line of Shem, it all starts at the same singular spot. And what was true for the people of Genesis 10 is true for the people in this room this morning. Our DNA comes from one singular source. And what that means is this. You are related to every person in this room. Did you know that? You are not sitting with strangers this morning, but family. You are a cousin to every person in this room. Somehow, some way, because our heritage has this very same starting point. This is not even a radical idea. It's not like this lives in some fringe place of fundamental Christianity. This is just basic humanity. In 2017, one of my favorite authors, a man named A.J. Jacobs, 
uh, published a book called It's All Relative. And he underwent this experiment to try to develop the largest family tree in existence in an effort to show the interconnectedness of all people. He's not Christian. He has no biblical agenda. He just has this basic understanding that all humans come from the same DNA, the same source. And so in his research, he was able to show how he was related to the president at that time, President Obama. And he was also able to show how president at that time, President Obama, was a cousin to 44 members of the Senate. Other research also showed that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are 19th cousins. They're all related, every single one of us. That means your favorite celebrity is your cousin. Tom Brady's coming to the cookout. That's the great news for all of us. How would it change your treatment of others if instead of identifying them as stranger first, you identified them as family? Regardless of nationality, ethnicity, origin, family. That's the truth the Bible gives us this morning. This is the way we view humanity. That's why our hearts ache for people in Afghanistan. And that's why we hear, Louisiana is about to get walloped by a horrible hurricane. We will ache for those people. They're our family. They're our family. How would it change the way you interact with the people if you thought, first, this is my family? Well, there's another way people are connected. It's not just by ancestry. It's also by our responsibility to God. So every person and every family and every nation listed in Genesis 10 exists because of the life-giving power of God. And, and because of this, they are responsible to him. What's true for Genesis 10 is true for this room as well. You are here because of the life-giving power of God. By his plan, by his choice, you exist and you are here. And since he is our creator and we are the created ones... We bear a responsibility to him. We must give an account of our lives to him. Every person you interact with in your life has an appointment to stand before the throne of God in judgment. Every single person. And in our words and actions, either we push their souls towards a glorious eternity or we urge their souls towards a horrific hell we ourselves have that date before the Lord, and everyone you're impatient with, indifferent to, dislike, will also stand before God. It creates an urgency in the mission of the church, an urgency on the individual believer to impact people's eternities for the glory of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul used this truth when he preached the gospel in Athens, and it's found in Acts chapter 17. Look at what Paul preached to these non-believers on that day. He said, from one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He has made us for himself. All human beings are connected to one another, connected by ancestry and by our responsibility to God. 
This story teaches us a second lesson about how to view humanity. Not just are we connected, but we're also divided. All people are divided. Though we have this, these things in common, there is division among us. And not all division is bad. The first thing this story gives us is that we're separated by what I would call natural divisions. There's just natural things, normal things that separate us from one another. They're not inherently bad. In fact, so many of these things are really beautiful and special. This is seen especially in chapter 10 at the end of each of the, each of the three lists of names. So we have Japheth's descendants and then Ham and then Shem. At the end of each of those sections is a summary statement that describes lands, families, nations, and languages that these people spread out on. Just look with me at verse 5, chapter 10, verse 5, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Here's the summary statement after Japheth's genealogy. It says, from these descendants, the peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands, according to their clans, in their nations, each with its own language. Four identifying markers right there. Those same four identifying markers show up at the end of Ham's genealogy and Shem's. Let me show you on the screen uh, how they break down, just so that, again, you can have a visual roadmap uh, for where we are. It's the same. If you go to the next slide for me, please. Um, next slide after that. Next slide after that. Oh, we're almost there. Sorry, go back. No, just go one more slide forward. I'm sorry. One more slide forward. Boom, we nailed it. All right. So, uh, here we have Japheth in verse 5. Uh, Moses wraps up the genealogy by pointing out these lands, families, nations, languages. Those four in a different order at the end of Ham's genealogy and at the end of Shem's genealogy. Families, languages, lands, and nations. So with the mention of families, Moses is telling us that there is an anthropological division between all people. With languages, he's telling us there's a linguistic division between all people. Uh, with lands, he's telling us there's a geographical division between all people. And with nations, he's telling us that there's a political division between all people. Now, these are not necessarily bad things. In fact, they can be really beautiful things. Different landscapes and cultures and languages and hair texture and skin tones all testify to the incredible creativity of our Creator God and His love for the people whom He has created. Our God-given differences don't need to be erased or ignored, but rather to be acknowledged as God's precious gifts. So we have these natural divisions among us. But there's a negative type of division among us as well, and those are what I would call sinful divisions. The next slide will show you that, sinful divisions. So our sin against God creates division between us and Him. We see this portrayed uh, with the very first sin in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And when God confronted Adam about his sin, what did Adam do? Did he own it? No, no, no. He blamed Eve. And he blamed God. Do you remember this line? The woman you gave me gave me this fruit. Not my fault. The woman and you. You guys did this. It's, it shows us how sin breaks the relationship. The relationship between God and our relationships between each other. Cain's sin separated him from his brother Abel. Ham's sin separated him from his father and his family. In these sinful divisions... 
that exist in every genealogy, every generation. We have to ask of ourselves, are there ways in which my sin is damaging the relationships in my life? My anger, my unforgiveness, my stubbornness, my critical spirit, my impatience, my harshness, my self-centeredness, these always damage relationships. Bring sinful division between the people we are closest to and even people that we don't even know. We make assumptions and conclusions based on faulty information or no information, just mere assumption. And we don't walk in the way of Jesus when it comes to other people. So here's what's true about humanity. We have this interconnectedness. In the midst of that, there are these divisions that separate us from one another. The question we would ask then is, how does it all get fixed? So the third way we view humanity from Genesis chapter 10 is this. God is bringing us back together. God is bringing us back together. That's the third lesson we learn about humanity in this passage. Where do we see that in play in Genesis chapter 10? Because it's not like there's a part where God enters the scene and he speaks and everyone hold hands and drink a Coke and it's going to be okay. We, We don't have that sort of scene in Genesis 10. But here's what you have to remember. You as a student of the Bible, as you're reading through, studying the book of Genesis, you are carrying a promise with you from chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 3, verse 15, after sin has entered the scene, God turns to the serpent and he says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so that promise of vindication and redemption is what carries the storyline of Genesis forward. Chapter 10 is not where that promise is fulfilled, but where it is continued towards its fulfillment. With these names, we see God is staying faithful to his promise. When we're unfaithful, he's faithful. He will carry it through all the way until he sets things right the way he has designed them to be. And so, how does God ultimately bring us back together? He does this through Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Adam, the son of God. When Jesus died on the cross, he crushed the head of Satan, and all that was broken between people and God and people and people is set right. Once again, the apostle Paul helps us understand how the death of Christ unites us to God and to each other. We play this out in our worship, in the most sacred moments of our worship when we take the Lord's Supper together. Look at what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. By our faith in Christ, we are many people who belong to the one body of Christ, one family. It's our faith that unites us to God. It's our faith that connects us to one another as well and makes whole what our sin has broken. And ultimately, God is preparing for us a future day, an eternal day, where our union with him and our union with each other is perfect. And God is so good to give us a glimpse of what that day is like in the book of Revelation. 
Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Here's what we'll sing. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. John uses language from Genesis 10 to describe our worship of the Lamb who laid down his life for us, that we would be united with our Father forever and each other in perfect unity. That's God's doing. He's bringing us back together, and all of us together will praise the Lamb for making one family out of many people. So what have we learned today about humanity from Genesis 10? We've learned that all people are connected to one another. Sinful divisions destroy us, but God is bringing us back together. And so the question we would ask at the end of chapter 10 is, what does that require of us? It has to require more than just some sort of mental agreement. This is not a, a theological exercise. If we believe these things to be true, then it, it lays requirements on our lives. Not just on our thinking, but on our living. And so there are two inescapable requirements for the believer from this passage. The first requirement is that we repent from all hatred and prejudice and racism and indifference and sinful attitudes and actions that we exercise towards other people. We cannot see the commonality of all people and the destination of all people by faith in Christ and not do battle with our sin against them. My words, my thoughts, my actions that contribute to sinful divisions between the people around me. You've got to kill that. You've got to leave it dead and walk away from it. Do not make room in your heart for a hellish attitude towards any human being when Christ has clearly loved rebels like us. He has shown us the better way. And brothers and sisters, you would do well to sit in a quiet house with the Word of God reverberating in your heart as you identify the places in your living where you are creating division. Maybe with people you live with, neighbors near you, co-workers, or just prejudices you hold against people you don't even know. This is not becoming a people of faith. We must repent of these sins. Not only must we repent from these sins, but the second requirement this passage lays on us is that we would seek the heart of Christ for other people so that we would love them in the way of the cross. You see, when we deal with people, we are dealing with the crown of God's creation. And so we must treat other people with the respect and love that image bearers deserve. God doesn't leave it to us to decide who we will love and who we will hate. This is not our choice to make. We are told, love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. C.S. Lewis, I think, helps us understand this in a, an essay, a lecture called The Weight of Glory. You do well to go home this afternoon, Google it. You'll find a free PDF copy online, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And I want you to look at what he says about the value of other people. He says, it may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Genesis 10, brothers and sisters, calls us to see people as Jesus does, to take up our cross and follow him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then you need to know what Lewis just said about you. You are not a mere mortal. God created you with an eternal soul, and you will find your deepest joy and contentment only in your creator. The view of humanity I've described this morning from the Bible is not popular. It is not broadly accepted in our culture or around the world. There are alternatives. One popular alternative is called secular humanism, which believes the natural world is all there is. All that is real is what we can see. There is nothing beyond this physical world. And so do the best you can with the time you have. Maybe there are some ethical requirements that come from just acknowledging we're all here just for a brief moment. Uh, Humans share equal value to other created beings, animals, or not other created beings, just other beings, other evolved beings. And so, just do the best you can with what you have. That's what's acceptable. That's what's commonplace. But I believe what the Bible has to say about you. I believe what the Bible has to say about humanity. And I hope you will also. The Bible tells us that you were made in the image of God in order to enjoy an eternal relationship with Him. Your sin has broken your relationship with your Creator, but He will not let you go. He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die in your place for your sins. And three days after He died, He rose from the dead. And He loves you and promises that if you will turn from your sin, and if you will turn to Him in trust, in faith, Surrendering your life to him, you'll be forgiven of your sin. You'll be united with him. You'll be saved, his child forever and ever. Brought back from the dead and given life. And so as you consider the claims of the Bible, you have to place yourself in your worldview. If you try to understand the Bible from a naturalist's point of view, you will struggle and you will find it full of myths and silliness. But if in humility you will say there is a creator and this is his love letter to me, then you will find what you were created for through faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to have that conversation, grab me after the service today or one of the pastors or someone that you came with today that you know walks with Jesus or give me a a call this week in the office and let's schedule some time to get together and over coffee In conversation, you can find what your creator made you for. Let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for your word to us and all that it teaches us. Here, just in a list of names, it reminds us that there's not a single name you don't know, a name that you've forgotten. It reminds us that there's not a name that's here by accident or that just slipped through. You have put us in our places for your purposes. And so, Lord God, I pray that as we, your children, have studied Genesis 10, that we would love other people the way you have loved us, and that we would trust wholly in what you have called us to do. We would obey in our love and sacrifice for others. Thank you that we get to be Christians in such a time as this, in such a place as this, that we get to live according to the law of love and show people the better way. So, Lord, through our words and actions, our repentance and our sanctification, 
would you bring to you men and women and boys and girls who would trust you and call on Christ to save them. And I pray that for friends in here this morning that don't know you as their Savior, that they would believe that you've made them for this purpose, that you know their name, and that by trusting in you, they'll find what they were created for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.